Oh man, what an awesome conversation we have for you today. I'm Jake Wiskirchen, host of the program. You know that by now. It's been five years. Uh, Joshua Slocum is my guest today, and he is incredible. He does a lot of work with uh, what, what we call Cluster B personality disorders. He's also got his own podcast called Disaffected. And if you haven't checked out Disaffected and you're interested in this personality disorder stuff, uh, you know, narcissistic, borderline, histrionic, antisocial, you're going to want to look into that because he, he does a great, great, great job of it. I say it in here, I think, and I've said it before publicly that, you know, I listen with a pretty, you know, pretty critical ear to non-clinicians talking about clinical matters. And I did the same with Josh, um, but I was so blown away by his just comprehensive, incredible depth of knowledge that I said, I think you do this better than any three of the best clinicians I could find and pull together. Um, He's got a great depth of experience. Um, His story is chilling, but I think it's probably also one that many of us can identify with, uh, being raised in a home with uh, parents who were not the kindest and not the most consistent, and some might even say crazy, uh, and how he got through that and now what he's, uh, what he's parlayed it into, and which is helping people identify this stuff so that you can better manage it, navigate it, push back against it, set good boundaries, and live a healthy life, not being emotionally manipulated by other people. So um, buckle in for a pretty good show. This is a pretty strong conversation, and it's not for the faint of heart. This is my chat with Joshua Slocum from the Disaffected Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome back, listening audience, to another Noggin Notes podcast. I sure do appreciate your uh, downloading our content and sharing it around. This is how we can help make Earth better. And one of those people who's helping make Earth better is joining us today. His name is, and I'm going to say it the way he says it on his podcast, Joshua Slocum, because then you don't have the diphthong of uh, Josh Slocum running into (laughs) one word into the next. But hello, Josh. How are you? Good, Jake. Thank you. How are you? I'm awesome, dude. Um, really nice to talk to you again. Um, I'll tell a brief story so the listening audience knows, but, uh, you have a podcast called disaffected and I'll, I'll let you tell that whole story, but I want to tell the story of how we met. So, um, Josh does this podcast and I, uh, I've been following him on Twitter. Unfortunately, he's, he's off Twitter now, but, uh, <laughs> I was like, man, I really like what this guy has to say. And I started listening to your podcast and I binge listened to like seven episodes in a row on a flight back from Florida last year on a family vacation. And uh, I was so enthralled and enraptured by what he had to say about uh, Cluster B stuff that I uh, just shot him an email and I was like, hey, man, you're amazing. Uh, I'm a therapist and uh, I'm very skeptical when I hear non-clinical people talking about clinical matters, but you do it better than like any three of the best people I know. So kudos to you. And then uh, one thing led to another and I ended up on his show a couple of times and now he's on my show and I'm very happy about that. But over the last year, we've, we've become friends and we chat pretty regularly and I'm very thankful for that. So appreciate you being here. Um, but that's the magic of the internet. You know, we, we curse a lot of what the internet does and how it divides and separates us. But this is one instance where two like-minded, um, you know, people came together to help uh, advance a, a message that I think other people need to hear. So I'll pause there and let you give your intro and tell you tell everybody how you got to be where you be. Okay. Well, I'm just here to stir the pot. So I'm fine with that. We like pot stirring. <laughs> Orthodoxy for its own sake never really advanced much. I know. 
yeah, no, it was, it was, it, it, it was very, I'm obviously I'm glad we met, but it was cool to hear from you in another sense too, because when I get communications from professionals in the mental health field, I'm never sure if it's going to be a, that's interesting. I'd like to talk to you more or a shut up, or are you sure you're not, um, practicing therapy without a license, or you don't know what you're talking about, et cetera, et cetera. So, oh, it's nice to get one that's, um, that doesn't seem to be evidence of an ego threat. So, yeah. Well, and thank uh, you. I don't, I don't want to take that lightly. That's something I've worked really hard on because I used to be that guy who was threatened by other people doing similar activities and I worked really hard. Oh, I understand. (laughs) Oh yeah. Um, shoot. Where, all right. Where do we start here? Um. (laughs) (laughs) Not there. You were saying to me before we started, before we started the recording, I want you to tell your story. And I thought to myself, which one? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, not to give everything away. Like if if people want to listen to Disaffected, go to the first episode, uh, like episode number one, and they'll get get a, a good context of it. But, you know, nutshell version maybe here. Yeah, well, the show is, I introduce the show every week by saying this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. The show has a thesis. Uh, there's an under, there's a, well, I'll just leave it there. It has a thesis. And the thesis is <clears throat> that we collectively are living in an era in which Narcissism and the behaviors and attitudes commonly found in people with cluster B personality disorders and in those around them who are affected by that and who are in an abusive system of some sort, much like what goes on in the domestic abusive family, that has jumped out of the family and into the public in a way that I don't think we've ever seen before. Agreed. I see. I see. Our, as American citizens, and you could extrapolate this to much of the rest of the Western world, I see us as living in simply a scaled up version of the abusive home with the narcissist or borderline parent, the parentified children, the triangulated children who are used against each other to service the ego needs of the narcissistic parent. Um, I, I think... It's it's almost more it's more than an analogy. I'm not really saying it's like that. I'm almost saying it is that. <clears throat> yeah. And it scares me. Yeah. Uh, in particular, attention paid to uh, two things that jumped out of my in my ears. The systemic nature of it. Yeah, I'm a family systems guy, so that makes sense. But but yeah. it is truly systemic. It integrates across many different um I would say holonic, I guess, if I can make up a word, um, holonic boundaries. And uh, for the listening audience, if you don't know what holon is, H-O-L-O-N, it's uh, it's part of what keeps you in a system. So we have a work holon and a family holon and a, and a uh, friendship holon. And all these holons, think of a Venn diagram. They sort of overlap okay. and bump into each other. So so it, it, it transcends those boundaries and permeates across systems. So systemically, yes, I, I agree with what's going on, but the – what you said about um, how it affects the the parentified children, I'd never considered that. For as much as you and I have dialogued, as much as we've we've studied this stuff, the the parentification of children who get neglected, either emotionally or through the traditional thinking of you know literally having no resources like food and shelter and heat, um, 
it forces them to grow up too fast and then take care of the people who are supposed to be taking care of them. And I, yes. I never saw that until now. And that's what's going on in our society. The citizens who are supposed to be governed by those they put in place are now having to babysit the ones in charge. <clears throat> Absolutely. And, and I, I, I think, I mean, if we can stretch this, and I think we can stretch this analogy, I think it goes even deeper uh, and it keeps extending. C- citizens are being put in a position and they are accepting this position. They're accepting it and they are enacting the role that is given to them. Right. Uh, so we are, we are complicit. We are cooperating. We are not merely abused. We are abused. Absolutely. But we are cooperating and we're, we're ensuring that that abuse continues. And we're doing that by <clears throat> indulging the position we've been put in. We as citizens are now not only taking orders from the government in a way that we should not be taking orders that is fundamentally anti-American. I mean, take Joe Biden, for example. Of all the presidents I've seen on the media, I have never before Joe Biden heard a U.S. president actually give direct commands to citizens and private companies on television the way this man does. And I mean direct commands. He says, here's a quote, lower your oil prices and do it now. Right. Who the hell do you think you are? And, and more than that, I mean, you know, every honest person knows that we're looking at a man with dementia anyway. Yeah. This has nothing to do with partisanship. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Factual reality is right there. We can all see this. Um, so, I, you know, it's not even worth it to be mad at Joe Biden. Because there's not a consistent Joe Biden day by day. Correct. Uh, anyway, what what alarms me is the lack of pushback to that. You know, and in I, fact, the agreeance with it. You know, you get a bunch yes. of citizens going, "Yeah, yeah, oil companies lower your prices. Yeah, yeah, people who haven't taken your vaccine, take it." Yeah, but so we've got we've got the citizens ca- uh, carrying out the orders, which. The very ex- the very fact that an order was issued by the president should be enough to provoke citizen backlash. We shouldn't even get past that step. That should be quashed, nipped in the bud right there. But it's not. But it's worse than that. It's also exactly like the emotional parentification that personality disorder parents do. So you're very familiar with this. I don't know how familiar your listeners are, but my mother uh, has both borderline and narcissistic personality disorders, and I am the eldest of three children. From the time I can remember being old enough to form memories, my job, and I didn't question this, I didn't think about it in this way in my head, it was simply the way it was, this is what life was to be for me, was to emotionally caretake my mother, including, you know, holding her and holding her hand while I was five or six years old, while she's sighing and and crying and sobbing and unable to put herself together to pay the bills or, uh, you know, whatever it was she was supposed to do that evening. But of course, that intensifies and it grows until the child is is the child becomes entirely responsible for regulating the emotions of a parent like that into adulthood, into adulthood. Right. Mm-hmm. And that continued for me into adulthood. We are seeing this with citizens as well. We've got ce- celebrities, <laughs> celebrities. I should, that that term shouldn't even occur to me when I'm thinking about I'm thinking about newscasters, people on on networks like MSNBC, fame uh, celebrities, movie stars, who rich people 
who are out there on social media claiming that just randos out on Twitter, ordinary, everyday people who don't agree with them are harassing them, abusing them, exploiting them for emotional labor. They got us out here apologizing to millionaires who are trying to set a cultural agenda and tell us that we're bigoted pieces of shit. And we and 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 they're parentifying us yeah. and we're doing it. We're acting like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry that I hurt Halsey's feelings. Yeah. It, the, the listening audience can't see me if you're not watching on YouTube. But I'm nodding to everything you're saying because this presents in the clinical. Oh, OK. Oh, I am. I guess I really should have shaved. Sorry, everybody. You're <laughs> well, getting Vermont tonight. I'm wearing I'm wearing a tank top with a paint splotch on it that I had to flip inside out so the microphone could cover it. So I, that's how. No, you're wearing a tank top just to titillate me. That's what you're doing. I hope you're titillated. Um, <laughs> worms the cockles of my heart. My cockles are burning. <laughs> exactly. Burning cockles. Um, Yes, but uh, I'm nodding along because the the number of stories I've heard over the uh, how long I've been doing this 14 years, 13 and a half years, um, that I identically align with what you just described with the literal hand holding, like you're literally holding yes. your your yes. parents' hand while they're sobbing on the couch at five, six, seven years old. Yeah, um, morphs into a different pattern of abuse later because once you have that capture. You can you can do a lot with the emotional leveraging, um, yes. and and so it's easy to point at the the celebrities on Twitter who are shaming uh, Joe Schlobotnik in the middle America for saying, "Hey, that's not appropriate," right? Um, but it's harder to see it sometimes in the occupational setting, and I I know you're familiar with this too, where there used to be a time when bosses. Gave instructions to employees, they followed them, and that was that was the relationship, right? You go home yeah. at the end of the day, you don't take your work with you. Then we had this collaborative thing go on, which was probably very good, uh, where bosses and managers collaborated with their subordinates to make sure that the whole company worked well. There was still the the delineation of roles and um, hierarchy, but now there's this weird thing that's shifted where bosses abuse their employees and when they don't fall in a line, they uh, they do the same emotional leveraging, especially when some new plan gets rolled out or some new training or some corporate uh, decision is made. And it's like this weird, you shall comply and if you don't, you're a horrible person and go work elsewhere. It's like, well, what happened to the collaboration? Did you bother to take the temperature of the room before you issued this sweeping uh, policy change. And that that smacks of the same type of stuff. It's like anybody who gets a, a whiff of power uh, doesn't know how to wield it responsibly or compassionately. And I so I, I, that's why I love what you're doing is because it's not just government. It's not just celebrity dumb in the Twitter sphere. It's, it's hitting home now. Uh, it's like people don't want to go to work because the corporate yes. entity is threatening their, their own... Um, desire to work the job some of these people in especially in medicine man it's happened over the last two years in medicine yes uh rampantly people don't want to go to work anymore because they don't want to face you can't a, blame them. an unaccountable leadership <clears throat> yeah that's really hard well and there's there are also areas where uh, this whole all of this this um this these cluster b dynamics relational dynamics that we're in domestically publicly at work the watchword is reversal, right? It's always about reversals, turning around, calling dark light, calling bittersweet, mm, all this I see other what you're stuff. Saying, yeah. So yeah. the the inversion of normal, the inversion parlance. of normal. The parent becomes the child. The child becomes the parent. Gotcha. The abuser becomes the victim. Uh, 
we see that also in the work world. We see it in, and I guess it depends on the industry that you're in, but there are many occasions where the young people who don't, who are new to the field are coming in and setting the agenda at yeah. multi-million dollar corporations and scaring the pants off their 50-year-old supervisors uh, by wielding emotional exploitation, by saying, I feel unsafe also or true. I feel... You know, so so there are these weird reversals sometimes um, that happen there as well. <clears throat> um, I, I don't want to go too far to uh, stray. I do want to sort of give you what you asked for at the beginning of this, uh, how I came to talk about this stuff on the show. I guess the short way to describe if I don't know how well this is going to go over, Jake, you've heard me use this before. Uh, it's my go to, but it's generational. So if people who are you know, 35 and under may or may not get it. But if you want to know the kind of house I lived in, my mother's character was a cross between a, a poor trailer park version of Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest and the religious fanatic mother, Margaret White, in the horror movie Carrie, the abusive mm -hmm. mother in the movie Carrie. <clears throat> my mother wasn't a religious fanatic in a, in a formal sense. But uh, her her borderline delusions and manias had a, a, a very almost Pentecostal quality to them. You know, a, a transporting sort of there's, there's a, a perverted kind of religious um, aspect to to the way she acted. So we were we are three uh, children in this house, two different fathers. I have a father I've never met naturally. <laughs> um, uh, oh, you That's a tongue-in-cheek joke for the for the people who don't know. Yes, it's like, naturally, of course, not not like natural in the natural sense, but of course, yes, you, because what you know, what you do when you're my mother, of course, is you get pregnant at 18 years old uh, by a grad student bartender who has no intention of being a father, and then you try to trap him into marriage and wonder why he runs away. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> you know, that's True. just what you do if you're a young borderline. Um. And our childhood home was filled with the kind of emotional instability that you expect from somebody with borderline personality disorder. They were very rapid swings between giddy elation and absolute despair, sometimes to the point of suicidality, um, uh, rages that would come out of the blue. And they might be verbal rages, uh, screaming, you know, every cuss word possible. You know, I remember one time when I was about 11, 10 or 11 years old, I, this is going to sound like I'm making it up because it sounds so much like the commercial, but I am not making it up. This really happened. Uh, you know, I, I think I slipped one day and I, I think I told my mother something like she was lying and she was full of shit because she was. Um, Joshua Slocum, where did you learn to talk like that? <laughs> right. I learned it from you. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> Um, but there was also, there was also, uh, you know, my mother, the father of my brother and sister was a very violent man. Um, I'm not exactly sure what was wrong with him mentally. He was definitely in the cluster B range. He was definitely there. Uh, but there was, as in so many of these couples, their pathologies meshed like gears in a transmission. They were perfectly fitted to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, they were both difficult people. My stepfather was was very violent, and in fact, the the culmination of of you know what got him kicked out of the house the last night. He literally did 
try to murder my mother. He strangled her in front of her children. Um, but I have to tell you honestly that, and, and there's no excuse for this kind of violent or murderous behavior, but I, I, I got to tell you, my mother seemed to make a career out of trying to provoke it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say that, I don't want listeners to hear, oh, here's another misogynist guy who thinks that women have it coming. Please don't hear that. That's not what I mean. It, it's definitely not what I mean. But I do mean that, that, and I've seen this in other relationships, particularly in relationships with, with one borderline and one narcissist, they will mesh together and you know, my mother would push and push my stepfather. She would say humiliating things to him, emasculating things. And she particularly liked to do that if her mother or his mother were in the room. Hmm. So she liked to humiliate him in front of, in front of a parental figure in front of his family. So this went on and, and on until I was probably about nine years old. Then we, we moved back across the country to upstate New York and as I approached adolescence, uh, all of the typical things happened. I was emotionally dysregulated, extremely troubled. I probably started clinical depression at nine years old. And by the time I was 13, I was trying to kill myself. So I ended up in the, in the, in the care system. I was taken out of the home. I was made a ward of the court. And I was put into an institution called Elmcrest Children's Center um, and then placed in a long-term group home for troubled boys. <clears throat> How long and, were you there, by the way? Uh, between three and four years. That's a long time. If I remember right. Um, after that, I, 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 I had a sort of marginal existence. I was, I dropped out of high school. At 16 years old, I mean, I, I really wanted to get out of this, this group home, right? Because I'd been put in... I'd been put into a place where the other boys, and of course they all came from extraordinarily screwed up homes too, but some of them were rapists. Some of them were car thieves. Most of them were physically violent. I'm not anything like that. I've never done anything like that. That, That's not who I am. And it was, it was really frightening. On the other hand, it was probably, it was probably the better of two options. Uh, Because if I had stayed at home, I, I seriously worry for the safety and live lives of my mother or me Dude, um, um, it would have come to a head yeah i want to jump in there because uh people who may be unfamiliar with this dynamic uh, this is this is where i cut my teeth in the profession is working with kids like yourself mm-hmm. and um it's uh it's really weird how this I mean, it's not weird it's just it's functional this is what our system has done um we take kids like you who would otherwise become a victim to those other abusive people and put them in a house together like what what are we yes. thinking, right? Um, but then the other dynamic is uh, usually there's a path to reconciliation or reunification with the family. That sounds like it didn't happen, or was it sabotage? They tried. Or? Okay. They tried. They tried. I wouldn't let it happen. Mm. Um, I did. I made a lot of very bad decisions for a lot of my life as a result of of how I grew up. But I was right about this, and I was right about it young. I I said I am never going back to that woman's house. Now, of course, we, you know, yeah. uh, so what I did, I, um, they, we had home visits and stuff. So, you know, like every other weekend I'd go home. Um, what were those like? Was it, was it just all pseudo mutual, uh, pleasantries to keep nice, to make nice, to keep things going along. So mom didn't get into further trouble or was it also a wreck? 
Well, thankfully, it was only a couple of days, and and usually, usually things could be kept together with duct tape for a yeah. couple of days. Yeah, yeah, that's typical. Yeah. And I did want to go home mm-hmm. because it was home, even right. though home was abusive. Yep. You know, I mean, I cried myself to sleep for a long time when I was put, you know, at the in the beginning of of being put to, you know, being put in there. Uh, you know, kids have ambivalent feelings about this. Sure. You know. Yes, they do. But I, I. I knew that this, I didn't want to go home and I had only one choice. So I went, I petitioned the court to become an emancipated minor and they granted me emancipation at 16. So Which I dropped startling. out. Of high- That's not typical. Is it not? No, not in my world. Um, usually uh, kids in the system are de- just basically decreed not to have any agency whatsoever. Um, also, to be that old, to even be legally allowed to file such a petition is very rare in and of itself. Um, by that point, usually the parents have quit. Um, they've lost their rights. They've had their rights terminated, something like that. <clears throat> they hide behind some disability diagnosis. Uh, and then you're on a path, you as the child are on a path to permanent group home into adulthood under the uh, auspices of your quote-unquote disability. And I say, quote unquote, because there are some legitimate disabilities. Sure. But there are also not. And um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's I, I don't know what the adults and the, the staff, I don't know what their treatment plan was. Obviously, I'm not privy to their notes. I don't know what what they talked about when I wasn't in the room. I don't know what they actually thought. I have to believe that some of the staff recognized my mother for the kind of person that yeah. she was. Um, I'm sure that that is true. Um I, I don't know what the court thought, but um, I I just, and I don't remember all the details of this, but I do remember that I was extremely persistent and insistent, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I would have never uh, guessed. You? I, <laughs> so that happened, and I, I, I lived for a time, <laughs> believe it or not, I, well, I lived for a time in an apartment that was funded by the Salvation Army, and it was a program for troubled kids. And in order to qualify, they would pay your rent if you either went back to school full time, worked full time or did part time each. Mm -hmm. So I worked full time. And and so but they put you in with a roommate. And, you know, I cockroach infested apartments, drug dealers uh, who, you know, I was a waiter. They stole my cash tips. Um, You know, it was it was it it was just rough living, you know, some friends stepped in um, after a couple of years and, and I got into much better situations, thankfully. But I didn't go to college until I was 21. Mm-hmm. And after that, I went and built a life um, for myself away from my family. And fast forward 20 years and I made a very stupid mistake. A typical mistake, but a, but a very financially and emotionally costly one and decided that I was going to make the family better. I was going to solve everything. We'd always been poor. My mother, my mother is one of those who claims all sorts of disabilities, Jake, but the reality is that she's lazy Mm. and she's a taker. So, you know, she put herself through school when she was a younger woman, she got two associates degrees. She went and became a Medicaid caseworker for a while. God help us all. Um, And then just simply decided to stop working. She just decided she was disabled, um, doctor shopped. I mean, this is a woman who's been a Valium addict for 30 years. Um, 
very it's very typical there yeah. you know you know you know who who this person is you've seen them um but i i thought i still had this sense of obligation now i'm the first one in my family line to get a four year degree i'm the first one to enter the middle class and i i i genuinely wanted to share that I wanted to solve my mother's biggest problem, which was that she was never financially stable. And as she got older and I got older, I thought about the fact that the care responsibility was going to fall to me as the eldest and the only one who had a stable income. So I said, why don't I take care of this in a different way? And I ended up buying a house that was in foreclosure for a low amount of money, put a lot of money into rehabbing it, turned it into a two apartment duplex. And I said, mom, why don't you move in here? I'll give you a rent controlled good rate you can afford. And we'll rent the other apartment in market rate, and that's how we'll we'll pay our bills. And it would have worked great. I mean, for a normal person. Yeah. But it was two years, and within those two years, um, everything that had occurred during my childhood came back. Uh, it had extended to my mother's new husband, who she was now abusing, a uh, man who's actually disabled. He's also a wretched person with a very low character, but he's also extraordinarily abused and mentally handicapped. And I, I was driven to a nervous breakdown. Um, I know that's not a technical term, but that's the best thing I can I can describe it. I was out of my I was out of my mind and unable to keep my life together, and it had to stop. And I'm I'm fine with colloquialisms, it, by the way. I don't I don't just hear those and discard them out of hand because they don't fit diagnostic criteria. So yeah, nervous breakdown, went crazy, whatever. Use use whatever you yeah, need to. Yeah, went crazy, it. drank even more than I I was, and I'd been an alcoholic for a long time. I'm dry now. Um, I had to evict my mother in the court system. And of course, the courts in my state in Vermont are extraordinarily tenant friendly and lenient. And uh, the court allowed her, of course, to miss deadlines, no penalty whatsoever, sit it out at my house, um, pass the statutory deadline, no compensation to me, no punishment to her. Um, until finally, we went back to court and the judge finally woke up and and I, I it was <laughs> It was a very satisfying moment. The judge said to my mother, are you having a problem understanding what it means to have a move out deadline? Because if, if you continue to have a problem understanding that, the sheriff will explain it to you in person. God bless judges who actually shoot straight. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there are a few. So that happened. And I call this period, um, I, I know it sounds a little glib, but there is no better word for it. This, I divorced my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the lawyers I hired, I had a hard time with them in the beginning. They were good people. I'm not complaining about them, but I had a hard time. Help, I ha they had a hard time understanding what they were dealing with. They thought this was just going to be well, a little family conflict and a rental tenant conflict. And I, I had brought to them, I said, you got to understand you are dealing with somebody who's not simply unpleasant. You're dealing with someone who's mentally disturbed. My mother has several personality disorders. She's a pathological liar. She's very good at playing the victim. She will turn into an old lady and cry in front of a court. Um, but she is a wicked woman and she's a liar and you need to understand this. And they keep getting back these, these insane responses from my mother or her husband because of course they didn't have counsel. And I brought in a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, I, 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 I printed off stuff from Bill Eddy's High Conflict Institute website. I printed out some stuff from the Mayo Clinic and a couple of things. And I said, guys, this is what you're dealing with. Finally, one day in the middle of this, one of the lawyers, Michael, in exasperation said, 
God, this is like a this isn't like a, an eviction. It's like a divorce. And I said, yes, Michael, it's a divorce. I'm divorcing my mother. This is a high conflict divorce. So if you know how to do this with your other clients, take those skills and apply them here. <laughs> and then they got it. And then they got it. Yeah, they were very good. That was that was the year 2016. And very shortly after that, that is when I discovered what cluster B personality disorders were. How? How did you discover that? Um, my sister. Hmm. My mother. Here, well, I'll give you some concrete examples because I know that some of the people listening to this show will relate to this. They'll say, oh, my God, my father did this. My mother would make up stories. She would either make up stories about things that I had done that never occurred, you know, trespasses against her that I had never done, or she would, she would flatly deny that things that actually happened in the recent past ever occurred at all. And I was fooled at first. I thought she was going into dementia. I thought this was a sign of senility. And I was, I was very, I was upset, but I had not, it had not yet broken through. I had not yet realized that I had invited my abuser back into my life and I put myself right back where I started. Which by the um, way, I want to jump in and interrupt because earlier you touched on a point about the, the role, you, not your words, my words, um, the role that the victim plays in exacerbating the cycle of violence, yes. right? So this whole like, um, the, the victims are never to blame. It's like, well, yeah, blame doesn't really help. But we have to acknowledge that there's a role that gets played that continues to fuel the fire. Uh, if we don't acknowledge that, we're we're actually becoming part of the problem and we're exacerbating it. So. We're always part of the problem. There is no such thing as an abusive relationship where there is only um, one party with a problem. And like you said, that does not mean that the victim is to blame. There's a reason right. why we are able to identify one party as the victim. Correct. That means that this person is being unfairly mistreated. Mm -hmm. That's real. But it's not about blame. It's about responsibility. And the, the fact of the matter is there is only one person in the world responsible for you and only one person who can help you. And that is you. Only you can make that decision. Nobody else. And you have to. So there's no, you know, there's no, I spent a lot of time, you know, crying and pitying myself, uh, but that didn't do any good. So. So about your you sister. Know, yeah. Well, I, so I thought my mother was going into dementia and I was calling my sister a lot and I was, you know, was really concerned. Now my sister had been living in the same town with my mother for about 18 years prior to my mother moving to Vermont. So my sister had been there in her life and had seen all of this stuff and was coming to her own realizations. And, and she told me afterwards, Josh, you had to see it for yourself to see how bad she'd gotten. And she was right. I really did need to see it for myself, but we we're like, okay, we're going to convince mom to go to the doctor. We're going to get her to take a cognitive test. We're going to get her screened for dementia, for Alzheimer's. This did not go over well with mother, as you can imagine. She was very offended. Um, even though at that point, anger hadn't even come out of me. I mean, it, it was really just concern is mom. I'm so worried about you. I'm scared for you. Please let me help you. You know? So she finally went and took some silly test on a piece of Maybe it's not silly. It is a piece of paper with a clock face on it. And, you know, it's a real simple screening for like, do you know, you know, do you know that you're on planet Earth? And she comes back waving it at me. Passed it with flying colors. You know, okay. 
call my sister again because because they're more lying and, and making up stories and stuff. And my sister said a magic word to me. She goes, Josh, our mother is not senile. I think she has a personality disorder. And I think you need to look that up. I believe our mother is a narcissist. I had never heard of personality disorders. I didn't have that concept. I had spent my entire life thinking my mother is crazy in a unique way that no other person is crazy in. This is part of why my family's embarrassing. You know, I can't bring friends over to the house because I could never explain to my friends why my mother acts the way she does. No one else can know about this. I really, as, as naive as this sounds, yes, I really did believe I had a uniquely crazy mother who had problems that no one else on earth had. So anybody listening, you're not unique. <laughs> you are not unique. <laughs> yeah, but that feeds into the whole uh, mechanism of playing out the cluster B stuff because the naivety is uh, taken advantage of. Until yes. it's not because the naivety can also set a boundary, which then escalates the person who's trying to perpetrate the yeah. abuse. So I, I read, I, I, I spent two or three days after that conversation with my sister I just, I pushed all my work aside. I did nothing but read about cluster B. I just tore through, I starting with uh, Cleveland and Mayo Clinic, uh, DSM entries. And then I went to forums for children of narcissistic parents, borderline parents. Uh, I just read voraciously, but I, I got to tell you, as soon as I saw the descriptions of borderline personality disorder, that was literally a life-changing moment. And I, I've described this spoken and I've described it in writing and I mean it. It's not a gimmick. I experienced this as if I could see a machine in front of me, a sorting machine that was taking these disparate, crazy, unconnected behaviors and going chunk, 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 chunk. They were all slotting themselves into a taxonomy that made coherent sense, right? I could finally understand it. And I said, oh my God, <laughs> This yep. is what's wrong with our family. My mother is not the only one who's cluster B mm -hmm. in, in our family orbit, you know, as, as it is with most families. So, but at that time, that is when I, that is, I, I'm not religious, but I call that an awakening. It was that meaningful and profound to me. It changed my life and it changed my entire perspective. That also meant that it, it made me look at my politics I had been a diehard um, vote blue, no matter who, leftist. I was fairly well into woke territory for quite a long time. And I looked around and, and I said, holy shit, why does it seem like all of my social circles themselves have borderline personality disorder? And then I began looking even further and I said, holy shit. Why does it look like the left right now? And not just the extreme left, but increasingly the mainstream left is enacting the same kind of reversals, uh, victim camouflage, claiming to be a victim while you are actually being the aggressor, mm -hmm. being a liar, and then saying that other people have slandered you, mm -hmm. um, ruining reputations. I mean, shit, they, were, they do this shit just like my, okay, the cancel culture, cancel culture started for me at home. Okay. When I tried to draw a line with my mother, she, okay, this woman would text me sometimes 36 times a day. 
Uh, and I'm sure there are people who've had hundreds of texts a day from their parents, but she would not leave me alone. Uh, the kitchen sink is dripping. Oh my God, I'm worried that the plumbing is going to go. The whole house is going to get flooded. Everything was a catastrophe, catastrophizing, right? And I, I can do me some catastrophizing because I <laughs> learned it from a professional. But my mother, I mean, everything, every day was a crisis. She'd interrupt me at work. Um, she'd complain. She started going through. She didn't like the tenants downstairs. So she'd call me up screaming about these disgusting children, these these filthy flipping urchins. I mean, the, the way she would talk about the children downstairs was just so hateful. I mean, and and then she would go through my other tenants. She'd go out to the mailbox and rifle, she'd take their mail rifle through it to see how many welfare checks they were getting and 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 sit there and and then she'd she'd go off and she'd write an email to me or she'd send a text to me about these these horrible trashy people who were driving her crazy they were ruining the property and josh i'm only trying to protect your investment i'm only trying to make sure that they don't ruin the lawn and the septic system and this i mean it was nuts but when i finally tried to draw a boundary and I started saying no. I had never said no to my mother in my life. I mean, you, Jake, you know me. You know how disputatious I can be. I'm not, I was not like that with my mother. I was a church mouse. I was terrified of her. So when I finally, as a grown man, started saying no, she went crazy. And she, she ended up threatening me. She and her husband were concocting a plan to file an elder abuse report with Adult Protective Services at the state because... I wasn't giving them a safe place to live, a safe and healthy place to live. Um, but as, as nuts as this sounds, the thing that really set her off, I refused I refused to be her marijuana supply source and run. Uh, and I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I smoke marijuana myself at night. Um, I am not against people making that choice. That's for you. But my mother was hardcore. I mean, from the minute she got up in the morning, it was just ridiculous. And, you know, like anybody who's highly dependent on a drug, God forbid she run out because I wasn't getting any sleep that night because my phone was never going to stop. Mm -hmm. You know, so let me let me stop. I think I've told enough of this story, but that's what happened. So not only did I wake up to my family of origin and put my mother out of my life, but I, I, my politics changed substantially. And as a result of this, I lost nearly all of my friends um, and I went through the, the very typical thing that that liberals go through when they are no longer so liberal, when they become libertarians or when they when they begin to talk actually with conservatives, that they share some values with. I went through all that typical stuff. So basically, I, I lost my entire social circle um, and, and had to start over and. The show started because I met some other middle-aged gay men where I am. Vermont is an extremely woke state with a lot of woke politicking. We all got together. We were trying to, to do something about some of the harmful policies that were going on in our cities and our school districts to promote the trans ideology. And that's where the show came from. I... So thank you for sharing that. Sorry. Thanks for indulging <laughs> us. No, no, no. It's, no, it's good. Um, I th 
I sit here and I think several things, um, and I'm, I'm mindful of what you've gone through in the last year or so because you've incurred some of the things to which you alluded earlier about people accusing you of diagnosing without a license or treating without a license or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think that that bears merit because when we start to tread into this territory of identifying the perpetrators of abuse and labeling them accurately, there's this... Uh, there's this mythos, I guess, in my professional realm that says, don't you dare put a label on somebody who you haven't thoroughly interviewed in a good, deep, solid biopsychosocial format, uh, lest you, you know, run away, uh, run afoul of the law or whatever. And, yes. and that doesn't help people in your situation because no. what you ultimately found was that she qualifies for all these diagnostic, you know, my, labels. Yeah. And that and yep. that unlocked it, right? So once yes. once we and I and I'm and I'm right too. You are. I'm right. My yeah. mother is cluster B. She does have borderline and narcissistic, and she does have secondary psychopathic traits. Any reasonable professional that I could put my mother in front of, I guarantee you, would come to the same diagnosis. Yeah, it's not hard once you know what this is. No, but it's useful, is the point. And and if yes. we don't if we don't want to be honest as professionals who are helping somebody, say you come into my office and you sit down and you're like, I need to, to work through this nonsense. I'm not being useful to you. I'm not being. I'm not honoring your path. I'm not honoring your testimony. If I go, well, 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 let's not make this about the person who's not in the room. Um, because then you're not validated in your experience and you possibly don't find the courage, the temerity, the, uh, the, the, the gumption to set the boundaries and continue moving forward. Um, it speaks to a, an emotion that I talk about not probably often enough called contempt. It's one of our 10 basic emotions. And we think of contempt as this undesirable emotion that, uh, you know, we don't want to do us versus them because it's toxic to humanity. Well, the problem is contempt has a use, a utility in separation from the foul. And I don't want to continue walking in a path that's going to keep bumping me up against people who are going to do me harm. So contempt is useful when you say, I don't want to be around you anymore because you're not good for me. And sometimes yes. we can get to that place where you're a better, healthier person by setting the boundary and walking away in peace but the functional emotion is contempt that allows you to do that. And you had to you had to use it. You had to leverage a little bit of anger, a little bit of contempt. And also, in so doing, you don't have to be in the shame-guilt cycle anymore. Because that that's yes. what my ears are hearing, is that you were, for 40-odd years, in this perpetual treadmill of shame and guilt. Absolutely. And the only way to get out of that is say, no more of this relationship isn't valuable to me anymore. Well, what's what's motivating that? A desire to change and a desire to separate from the toxicity. If we don't label it accurately, if we just play, we, we pussyfoot around it, and we just go, "Well, I don't know if she's really borderline, or I don't know if that's narcissistic." Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe Donald Trump doesn't have the narcissistic because he hasn't been right. evaluated. Um, that doesn't I, I do know. anybody it's, any favors, and it's something it's all, you and I've discussed. Uh, yeah, many, many times, and and you know, for those for those who who still. Um, for those who still, and I'm sure there are, I'm, uh, well, I mean, you know your audience better than I do, but I mean, having an audience, I've, I've noticed some patterns. Uh, th there are always going to be some people who hear something like this and they still have, oh, I don't like it when you put a reductive label yeah, yeah. on someone, right? Well, I have a couple responses to that. One is, first of all, I am in fact a reductionist 
and I'm not an apologetic reductionist. No, I don't feel bad. and I don't uh, believe that I'm ruining everything by not bringing enough nuance. I think there's a difference between being sophisticated and being bullshitted. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of this is just being bullshitted and bullshitting ourselves. And for the purpose of self-protection, because yes. we ourselves, and I'll go back to emotional functioning, we ourselves have not broadly, not practiced pushing through the emotional wave, coming down the other side and saying, well, I had that emotional experience and life went on. You know, the world didn't spin off its axis. So instead of doing that, because it's scary to face that, we don't want to look ourselves in the mirror. We don't want to own things. We don't want to stand on principle. We'd rather just play nice, but at our own peril. We end up we end up yeah. failing ourselves because we fail to reduce things to what they actually are. So there is a time and a place for that. There is. And, and what people, um, when it comes to, here's, people... People will often say, okay, so we all agree that the behavior you're describing, Josh, is bad and abusive behavior. So why isn't that good enough? Why can't we just say this is bad behavior? Why do we have to put a personality label question. on it? Great question. Okay? Go with that. I have an answer to that question. One is, and I suggest this, please consider this if you're one of these people who is inclined to respond that way. Stop for a moment. Take inventory of yourself. A lot of this is an emotional reaction to the idea of labeling. I'm not criticizing and I'm not talking down to anyone. But a lot of this is, this is a reflexive feeling. It's not a thought. You're not thinking. You're, you're emoting at someone and saying, don't label. Why are you doing that? Well, if you're, most of us have been soaking in a culture that tells us repeatedly from many different angles that we are enacting a harm against other people if we label them. Mm -hmm. And this makes emotional sense, especially to people who are more on the liberal side, who think of themselves as empathetic and sympathetic primarily. This makes sense to us because we hear echoes of, well, you know, and I learned not to just label people when I finally learned that my gay friends were real whole human beings too, not just a gay stereotype. So why do you even have to talk about that, right? right. This is, I understand this, but th- these associations are misleading people, okay? These well, are not the same thing. Well, and that, and that whole idea is not monolithic unto itself. I think that we, we, in my profession, go through counselor school and we learned to, to avoid labels because people can be many things. And that's a good mm-hmm. thing. We, sh- we can be many things. But when it becomes pathological and there's an abuse cycle, now yes. we have to be mindful that the labels are necessary to escape it. And, and I don't think we, we pay enough heed to that because we've, mis- we've miscategorized not labeling the, the concept of not labeling people because people can be more than they are. Yeah. And we've, we've totally ignored the path of destruction that has been wrought by the people who use that very technique against yes. us. Don't they very me. much do not want to be labeled. Why don't they want to be labeled? Because they want to keep getting away with abusing you. That's right. why. Here's the other answer, part of the answer to the question. Why do I care that my listeners, why do I care that the world, whoever listens to me, knows what cluster B is? Why isn't it enough just to say it's abusive behavior? Here's why. Because when you know what it is and when it's cluster B, you can protect yourself by predicting the behavior. This is about pattern recognition. This is, my shrink said this to me a couple of years ago. Yes. In fact, this is profiling. I am asking you to psychologically 
profile people. Mm -hmm. That is what I'm doing. Uh, and yes, I think it's okay. No, I don't think you need permission. Yes, I think it's an important life skill when you are in a situation where you might have a manipulative or abusive person around you. It matters because somebody who has a personality disorder is not having a bad day or Correct. even a bad month, okay? This is not a passing depression. It is not a passing bout of chronic anxiety. They may have those things. Those things often do occur, mm -hmm. right? But this is not your friend who is prone to depression and sometimes might have a month-long cycle where she can't get out of bed, she's not reasonable, but most of the rest of the time, she's fine. We're talking about something different here. This, it's called a personality. It used to be called character disorders, and I actually like character disorder better. Yes, because it's more judgmental. Yes, affirmative. Um, we are... Even and there are a lot of professionals who don't like this, and and there may even be some part of you, Jake, that that has a, a a dispute with this. And if so, of course, obviously, you can push back on me. But we are in fact talking about who these people are. What kind of person are you? Yeah. Are you? And yeah, we are rubbing up against the question of are you a good person or a bad person? I would just dive into is, it. We're not rubbing up against it. It's all about that. And the fact that we. Right. I guess I'm, I'm even trying to hedge here because people are so reactive to that. There are a lot of people out there who literally, you know this, Jake, they literally do not believe that there are any people on this earth that don't have some good. Or at least they say they believe that because that's the objection that they come at you with when you label this way. If, okay, so let's say well, that's the problem because you're allowing the exception to to disprove the rule, and that's right. that's what people with personality disorders will do. They'll point to their uh, very rare episodic exceptions. Say, CC, I donated to charity. It's like, no, we're looking at the entire body of work here. I, I don't care if you donated to charity. I don't care that a particular governor of a certain state donates his salary if the entire body of work is oppression. Like, yes, that doesn't, that exactly. doesn't float with me. Yeah. And the thing, the thing about it is, um, you know, uh, these personality disorders are not treatable the way other milder mental illnesses are treatable. There is a range of opinion among professionals that I'm aware of. There are some professionals I know who claim to have a very high success rate treating borderline personality disorder, for example. Um, there are some that claim to have a higher success rate, uh, higher success rate treating uh, narcissistic personality disorder. Here is my view. Um, other people will have a different view. It is possible. I didn't used to think this, but I, I was wrong and I see it now. It's possible if you get somebody who has borderline personality disorder and you get them young enough, late teens, early adulthood, yeah. um, and they are able to hear and accept a diagnosis like that and its implications without falling apart and hating the therapist. That's a, that's a big ask, by the way. That's a really huge ask. And, and, and this here... Here is some actual empathy for borderlines. I'm going to demonstrate some actual empathy because people think I just hate everybody. <laughs> um, I probably qualified for a diagnosis of borderline or histrionic personality disorder myself in my 20s, certainly in my teens, uh, my late teens. Uh, 
Um, and I still have traits uh, and I have to work on them. And under stress, the worst parts of me come out. And some of the worst parts of me look and sound like my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do have some understanding of how emotionally painful it is to accept there's something seriously wrong with the way you think or feel about this. And it's not an external party that's doing it to you. It's you that's doing it to you. It is an awful lot to ask somebody. People with borderline personality disorder can be extraordinarily abusive and manipulative, but they are also in extraordinary pain. Yep. Yep. They are in horrible emotional pain. And to ask them to do this is a very, very big ask. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if you can get that person and you get a therapist who recognizes what this syndrome is and understands the ways to effectively treat it, you there are success stories there. But cluster B writ large, including the borderlines, the confluence of circumstances that need to come together to successfully treat that are do not come together very often. Most cluster Bs the vast majority of them, in my opinion, are never going to get better. You are not going to love them back to health. Um, I've seen a couple instances. I've well, I've heard them reported. <laughs> I don't. I don't know how accurate these self reports actually are. I've heard of some examples of a fairly young couple where one of the spouses has borderline personality disorder. It's it's screwing the marriage up, and that person gets into counseling. And they work through it together and there is significant improvement i i'd love to believe that these things are true and i'm going to assume that some of them are true but they are the exception and not the rule so why i do what i do on my show and what i what i'm going to be doing is i just launched um a coaching and consulting business uh where i you know people who want to come to me for advice on dealing with a high conflict possibly personality disordered person we can walk through what your options are, what the likely consequences of each choice are. That, And you have to actually make the choice at the end. I, you can ask me what I think the most likely thing is, and I will absolutely tell you, and I will tell you straight. If I think that, um, if I, you know, first of all, if, if somebody comes to me and I believe they're actually in danger, I'm going to tell them right away. I think you are in physical danger right now and that you need to get out before we talk about anything else. But I'll also tell people, you know, if they describe somebody to me who, and of course I'm at a distance and I'm only getting one side of the story, but if they describe somebody to me and I make a judgment to myself, I think they're being accurate. This does sound like they have a personality disordered father. And they say, you know, do you think I could, if I could just do this, that that, I'm not going to tell you, yes, I think your father's going to be a different person. I'm going to say your father's going to be the same person. You're going to have to decide whether that's enough for you, whether the boundary that you put there, is is strong enough so that you're not getting the emotional pinging all the time and you are going to have to decide and you may have to do this through trial and error you will have to decide which is more painful to you cutting dad out of your life permanently or staying in chaotic relationship with dad Mm -hmm. or limited chaotic relationship i don't know what will be more painful for you i have some very strong suspicions but only you can find that out I want to, I love all that you just said and I endorse it. Um, here's, here's my, my two asterisks that I'm going to put on there yes. because, uh, before we get to the positive part, cause I want to, I want to, I want to give people a sense of hope too. And you sort of touched on that there with your, with your idea about how to, how to deal with this. One asterisk is the reason that 
you hear the stories about the people who are successful, quote unquote, or they, they got into treatment. Most don't. And I don't mean most 50% plus one. I mean more like 90 some percent. And unfortunately, I think that overall pie is growing. It, you know, if we look at the current DSM, I think a, uh, I think the DSM-5 research on prevalence cites something from 2002, and that's not even relevant today uh, by any measure, but particularly in the last five to seven what years. What are they claiming the prevalence is of Oh, it's, I was going to say it's like uh, somewhere between 1.7 and 3.2% or something like that. Nonsense. No, I put it at closer to 10%. Uh, and you and I have talked about you this, put it, and I think, I think it's higher than that. Um, I don't know where, but maybe one in five. I mean, it's okay. way high. And now, do you meet full blown diagnostic criteria? Eh, maybe not. Um, yeah. But because you only you only have to meet five of the nine. Five of the nine for, right. for, for borderline, for example. Um, but they're but they're pretty hard to meet because there's language in there like um, extreme and pervasive and more often than not. And you know, it's like it's pretty hard. To yeah. Meet well, that. and that matters. But, you know, that is how you discriminate between you know levels of pathology. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so. But here's the thing. It doesn't, you don't need to meet five and nine to cause destruction in your life or somebody else's. There's the problem. Right. So there's one problem is A, they made it into treatment. B, they met, met the criteria. And being in treatment in and of itself means that they write, they have some level of in, personal insight and recognition that they need to make a change. Okay. Yes. Oh, so, so we've already eliminated a whole bunch of the population who never even makes it in, like your mother. Yes. Okay. That doesn't mean she doesn't have it. Uh, and I right. talk about this with uh, the guns and mental health stuff, you know, mass shooters yep. and, you know, people who perpetrate evil acts. Oh, like, boy. Well, there was no yeah. mental health. It's like, that just means they didn't make it into the system to be diagnosed. Jake, right? you and I have talked about this, too. Um, the state of your profession right now, the number of practitioners. And, and I'm not yeah. trying to be cute no, or no, insulting. No, 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 keep going. But that's my second I, asterisk. I, I, honestly, right now. I cannot in good conscience simply say to anyone who wants my advice, I can't glibly say, try therapy. I'm sorry, but I think today, try therapy is as often going to be dangerous and harmful as it is to be helpful. Because I am looking at a feel, and I realize that there are there are people who are barely degreed, barely educated, who, who meet the lowest rung of licensure criteria and that there are people all the way up to the PhD level, I understand there's a spread. Looking holistically, I think, number one, I'm looking at therapists and counselors across the country um, who describe situations or I watch them on social media. I watch how they analyze social situations. I watch how they analyze conflict and I look at them and I think to myself, I am looking at somebody who has a state license and a degree who literally cannot see cluster B right in front of their face. That's my second asterisk is our profession is timid when it comes to this particular presentation. And I have one very startling anecdote that I will share. Please. At one point... I don't know how much more trouble I can get in with my peer colleagues, so I don't really care. Um, <laughs> but at one point, I had a couple of interns working for me who had the same supervisor, and they reported that in supervision with this supervisor, who had been practicing a very long time, told them, avoid diagnosing a personality disorder if you can avoid it and use something softer because it will startle the patient 
and a whole bunch of other reasons that don't make Why sense. Why should the and patient said, not be startled? And I said, that was one uh, one pushback that I gave. But the other one, I always reach to medical when I go there because we're in like the soft science and we don't, we sort of hide behind the medical model when we need to, but then we don't when we don't want to. But then to, you and, disavow it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, so I always reach to, to medicine and I say, if you went into your doctor for stomach pain, chronic stomach pain, and the doctor did some blood work and uh, uh, did some consults and it came back that you likely have stomach cancer instead of indigestion. Imagine that the attending told that resident, maybe in this case, because this would be an appropriate analogy, don't, don't tell them they have cancer. Give them Tums. Can you imagine the fallout? Who are you helping there? You. You're helping you. You, you yourself are uncomfortable you. with... You're helping your cowardice. You, yes. Um, and I said, it's despicable. It's dishonorable. It's unethical. I can cite code. I can cite law that would tell everybody, don't ever under any circumstance do that. However, it is a thing and it's now presently being taught as recently as two years ago. And where that comes from, I believe, is from the universities for sure. But where do the universities get it? The professional associations. And the professional associations are not at all interested in labels. They're more interested in, especially now, because the American Association Unless of Unless it's LGBTQ, yeah, well, which is you, all good. So the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy just published, uh, they actually had it written in like October, because that was the date stamp on the thing, but they, they didn't publish it until March 31, I want to say. And um, <clears throat> they published their guidelines for LGBTQIA plus uh, therapy and affirming therapy. And essentially, apart from all the, the word salad that accompanies the 26 pages, by the way, uh, for those of you who don't know, our entire ethical code from the AAMFT is 11 pages. This guideline publication was 26. Um, apart from the word salad and the deconstruction of all the things that are evil, like, you know, being cis and white and heteronormative. And a man. Uh, the, the, yeah, yeah, all that. Um, the general tone was agree with your patients don't challenge them and i thought oh my god this is bad because what you're doing is you're taking away the training education and experience and that's common language among law that that gives us our license do you have the training education yes. experience right that's the minimum criteria that's all the licensing board requires is minimum criteria to your earlier point can you imagine if we take this a little further and i don't i'm not talking slippery slope i'm talking one or two steps where affirming care which means agreeance, not challenging, but agreeance goes to fix my kid. He has ADHD. I don't think your kid has ADHD. I'm the professional in the room. I have the, the certificate on the wall and all the stupid letters after my name. What I think is you have an enmeshed relationship with your child and you can't set boundaries. And that's why he acts as crazy as he does. He bounces off the walls and can't pay attention in class. But boy, he loves his video games, right? Because it's an escape. I'm not allowed to say that because I would be accused of being unaffirming. And if I'm being accused of unaffirming, that has ethical implications, which then point to my license. And I could have my license revoked for simply not following the protocols or the uh, criteria as set forth by the professional association. So this trickles out. It makes us, it, honestly, it neuters us. It makes us neutralized in the very Notice, sense of the word. Yes, it does. Notice that this is another reversal. It is. This is another reversal where the 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 sick person, the person in need of help, the person who is 
at least temporarily compromised, Mm -hmm. is put in the position of authority. Mm -hmm. And the actual professional who is there to help them is made subordinate. Yep. It's Uh, another reversal. Here's another step. This very, very recent development. Um, Pharmacists now are allowed to uh, prescribe and dispense Paxlovid for um, COVID symptoms. And Paxlovid hasn't been tested on anybody who's previously had COVID or has been vaccinated. They tested on the unvaccinated, and um, they didn't. They didn't robustly test it. Pharmacists broadly are very competent people, and they're very, very knowledgeable about drug-drug interactions and so forth. Um, but the area in which a pharmacist works, if it's a, it matters significantly. If it's a hospital, that pharmacist usually has a lot of time and a lot of resources and a big giant database to compare medical history, contraindications, and uh, prescribe appropriately, and the time to provide counseling on the drug before it gets prescribed. That doesn't happen at Walgreens. It doesn't happen at Walmart. And those people have the same power now to prescribe Paxlovid to anybody who walks in and says, I want Paxlovid because I, th- I had COVID and I, and I want to ameliorate the symptoms. It's become the new Z-Pack. Um, and that just ha- I just learned about that today. And today is uh, July seventh, so we're we're seeing another reversal here, and it's it, this is affirming care, the spirit of it anyway. Even if it's not written in guidelines, the spirit of affirming care is don't argue with people, just give them what they want. Give the customer what like, they want. The customer cow. is yeah. always right. Yeah, even yep. if the customer has no knowledge whatsoever, it's like, well, I WebMD'd myself. It's like. Yeah, I don't know if I should. Uh, I don't know if I should go with that. <laughs> it's a, it, it, it. This is a really tough call for for any thinking person who has who may have a need for either physical doctoring services or mental health doctoring services. This is a difficult one because it. it you have to. Re- you're going to have to rely on your own discernment and judgment, and you may or may not be competent to make that judgment. Yep. And this applies to me as well. Um, I don't, there's no easy formula to give to people to tell them how to make this decision correctly, because I, I do know that if I have a somatic ailment, um, I want, no, I had a heart attack at 36, right? And I was very grateful that there was a surgeon and a surgical team who knew 50 million more things about what was wrong with me than I did. I just simply said, save me. Right. Mm -hmm. And they did. I want that competence. And there are instances in which I am going to place myself entirely in your hands. On the other hand, while I had wonderful acute care that saved my life, the follow-up treatment was based on absolute nonsense. Mm -hmm. When I got put into cardiac rehab, The good part about that was the motivation and the exercise and the structured uh, times where we would all be in the gym together, lost a lot of weight, put it all back on. (laughs) Um, That was good. But the diet they recommended to me, the cardiac rehab diet that I was supposed to be on for the rest of my life was a worse version of the USDA food pyramid with the heaviest amount of calories coming from carbohydrates, grains, sugar, carbohydrates are sugar. And I'm a heart patient with borderline diabetes, right? I had to figure out on my own, both by reading alternative sources and weighing the accuracy and then doing it myself, that as a matter of fact, 
not just as a heart patient, but just as a person, I should be eating basically little or no carbohydrates and a lot more meat and fat. And when I did that, well, what happened? Well, you know, obviously I've gone back to the carbs now and I have to go back, but everything improved, everything, my blood sugar, all of my numbers, my mood, my alertness, the physical sensations in my body. So it's t- it's tough you want, for you a want modern a, person. You want to balance, right? We want to we want to yeah. balance, and, we want, and this is where rapport comes in handy. Uh, if you if you have trust and you have rapport, you can push back on your medical professional and say, you know, I don't know about this because of <laughs> I did my own research, um, and and you can have a dialogue. It doesn't have to be a one way street, right? One or the other. And I think what I fear is that the pendulum has swung too far to the inverse now. Um, and we've empowered non-prepared, non-educated, non-trained, non-experiential uh, lay people to speak as though they have the same level of experience and expertise, and they're not allowed to be argued with. And that's the real danger. That um, is the danger. We, we've undercut the medical profession in doing this. And simultaneously, because of the pendulum swing, a different pendulum swinging differently, away from stay healthy, be healthy to everyone has an illness because it's either trendy or it gets me special services or resources or whatever. Um, We've over-pathologized normal life and that's created a crippling demand upon the professions broadly, not to mention the workforce uh, problems we're having now with people just quitting, uh, healthcare specifically, mental health care, I think we're getting more. And what it has has done to our psyches, just Uh, as people out there, right, is convinced us you know, it has made so many people into the worried well. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's a problem. But, but the bigger problem, I think, is that because of the market dynamics now, the demand for services is so high and the provider availability is so low that there is nothing compelling higher competence. I can stay minimally competent and still get a great revenue stream. Yep. And I don't have to get better. I don't have to improve my own talents or skills or education set. Um, I'm just going to keep grinding people through the calendar. They may or may not get well. They probably won't more often than they will. And that's really bad because, again, go back to your earlier point, you're not confident in referring people to therapy because the therapy world is just not very good. And unfortunately, I'm having to have my own comeuppance with the gun community where I can't just say, hey, look, um, I wrote an article for Walk the Talk America uh, back in 2019. I said, counselors cannot take your guns. And I was absolutely adamant about that because there's ethical prohibitions. There's legal prohibitions. The the first line of defense is not call the deputies to steal your property. It's it's get you a higher level of care, work a little harder, give you some more homework, right? Um, Right. But recent (laughs) events in New York and Illinois have shown that not only is there no ramification for bad care from licensing boards, as is the case with one gal, Sandy Richardson, in New York State, whose clinician lied to put her into a non-gun database, the licensing board was not interested in taking up that complaint. It is documented. This is documented. The licensing yeah. board, social work board of New York didn't care to act. Um, we also have Illinois where uh, a lady was checked herself in a couple of years ago for postpartum depression, uh, discharged within one visit, said, you're fine, this will pass, you're not suicidal. Um, but because of the admission itself, voluntary, I might add, yeah, she got her FOID card, which is the card you have to get in order to purchase a gun in Illinois, 
uh, she got her Floyd card taken. And now that's going to go somewhere, legal issues, something or other. Um, but I, I can't comfortably say, hey, gun owners, you don't have to be afraid of me picking up the bat phone. Go go get help. That's the most important thing. Keep yourself from from destruction in your own life. Because I don't know that my profession is trustworthy. And I don't know that the licensing boards per, who are tasked with holding us accountable are trustworthy. But yes. what I can reasonably assume is that I, as a licensee, can have a complaint filed for one, one of the woke violations and be punished for it. So it's, it's, it's very political. It's very narcissistic. It's very inconsistent. And, and that's sad. It makes me sad. So, you know, as we shift into the, the final gear here to, um, you know, to, to wind down the podcast, I want to, I want to leave on some, some upbeat, you know, positive, uh, encouraging things. One is, uh, the market will figure it out. Eventually the, the non-woke will collectivize and we'll make ourselves known and we'll probably still be able to get the help and care to people we need. One of them is you and you're doing that not as a licensee, but by starting your own business and saying, I'm just going to talk to people because I have this body of knowledge and I'm trustworthy and people can see it. Um, what do you see as some other ways that, that we could bring help and healing to a populace that needs it and doesn't necessarily have to have the, they don't necessarily trust the traditional s- systems to fall back on <clears throat> podcasts, more podcasts for sure. I could, well, I, I, I am going to say that um, not just for self-serving reasons. Let, I, I don't know the answer to this and I don't know what is going to work for everybody, but um, to the extent that there are people who are put together like me, I can tell you what worked for me. Mm-hmm. So, and I, there was no plan here. I didn't know where I was going and I didn't know I'd end up where I've ended up in my mind and my, uh, my judgments and my political leanings. I, I had no idea that I would end up here. If you had told me six years ago that you'd quit the Democratic Party, that you would make sure that no one ever thought you were a liberal, I would have been offended. Uh, but um, and my, my own therapist, uh, when he said this, he shocked me, but he was right. And that's one of the reasons he's a very good therapist, because he does tell me the truth. Um, I was in a cult. I was in a social justice cult just Mm. because it's not formally recognized and doesn't have one single charismatic leader. I was in a cult and I thought in cult ways. And I believe that cult rules are cluster B rules, are authoritarian rules. Mm. I think they all share this stuff in common. You have to get out of. You have got to get out of whatever rut and bubble you are in, in terms of what you are consuming in media, who your friends are, who you're willing to talk to. You have to get out of that. So as I became less, just less socially comfortable around my my friendship group, as I began to move away from them, I started listening to people, reading authors, listening to radio hosts and podcasts that I never would have before that I considered morally contaminated because they were right wing. Mm. there's emotional moral contamination is everywhere right now it's um it 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 seems to be a hijacking of our disgust instinct yep and we've gotten to the point where and this is not normal stop thinking it's normal you were not like this 10 years ago none of you listening i wasn't like this the average american wasn't like certainly wasn't like this 25 years ago this idea that even listening to or being seen to click the like button on a conservative 
the, the very fact that that provokes anxiety in you, and you know that it does, many of you listening, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe your, your audience is all the way over there, but that's not normal. That is a conditioned anxiety, emotional reflex um, that is that is being used strategically to keep you where you are. So I read voraciously. I listened voraciously. And I discovered that almost all of the people or groups or institutions that were more libertarian or more conservative than I was, than I was, that I believed, and I did believe this bullshit, they hated women, they hated gays, they hated single mothers, they liked seeing people on the street, they liked slave wages. I mean, I believed all of this nonsense. I discovered that almost none of that was true. Yep. None of it. And yeah, of course, there are, there are crappy people on, on each end of the political spectrum. Today, right now, though, the pathological lying is coming from the left. It is not coming from the right. There, Yes, yes, there are liars on the right. There are scammers. There are egotists and narcissists. But the volume of what they put out compared to what is coming out of the left, there's no contest right now. It is not both sides. I'm yeah. sorry, it's not. It's, it's um, Well, it's not both sides equally, right? And so, no, right. It's, it's not really both sides, but it's not, even, it's not even close. Yeah, yeah it's, it's easy to point to like QAnon. And, and I, I've run yeah, and they're people, and I've broken up with, with a few friends who were like uber conservative because I dared say things like, uh, uh, let's let's take a look at our healthcare system. It probably needs revamping. It's like, what are you talking about? You talking like a, a status globalist? It's like, yeah, okay, I can't talk yes. to you. But but they're so much less frequent, and there's so so loud, many fewer of those. What's, than... what's what's interesting while we're on this though is, and I think it's worth mentioning is that the left does purposely highlight that as, to make it yes. look like it's equal, and it's not. It's just not. Yes. No, it's not. And there will there there may come a time when when the pendulum swings and it is that. Mm -hmm. And when I was when I was much younger, the 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 right wing moral majority yeah. faction did, in fact, have significant cultural power. And they Absolutely. really yeah. were uh, standing in the way of things like basic equal civil rights for gays. And I'm not talking about special privileges. Yeah, the, the, I'm talking about the just 90s, basic stuff. The nineties were, were pretty, were pretty bad. And I sucked. No, the eighties were, were worse. And, and by the time the nineties came along, Jake, we were getting a lot better. Hmm. We were getting a lot better. I was thinking more like the, uh, uh, the Newt Gingrich, 1994 congressional hmm. take, you know, that kind of stuff. And when yes. Rush oh, was sure. really oh, at for, his, for sure. As high I just see, I see the progress, you know, like for a gay person, the 70s were better than the 60s. The 80s were better than the 70s. The 90s were better than the 80s. Then we come into the 21st century and and really, I mean, made so much progress. So listen to people. And also, I don't know how to tell you how to do this because um, I had to stumble into it and kick and scream and finally just accept it. If you are coming out of if you are thinking about, if you're changing your mind politically and or if you are trying to escape from any kind of relationship that is abusive, that may involve personality disorder dynamics, even if we're not talking full personality disorder, if you've got a, the thing that happened to me that I did not expect and that was very, diff the whole thing was difficult, but the, one of the most difficult parts was 
once I saw my mother for who she really was, what kind of character she had, that was freeing and liberating. It was intensely painful, but it was a pain that needed to happen. But I wasn't expecting to see so many things wrong with me. And I did see so many things mm-hmm. wrong with me. It became clear to me all the ways that I was mirroring her dance steps and providing an opportunity for her to do this. And then that quickly led to an examination of the conflicts I've had in other relationships. And I had to accept that my experience coming from my family, that I had inherited some of my mother's bad traits and that I had ruined some relationships with that kind of behavior myself. And I, I, I was able to understand why it happened. I know what emotions were making my cortisol go through the roof. I knew what kinds of things would trigger me into being unreasonable. And I had to start, I had to start babysitting myself. And Jake, you know me, you see me on social media, you know, I'm not perfect about this either. I still have a lot of things that I work to control, but I had to be, I had to say to myself, Josh, are you doing this thing right now? Are you making up an enemy? out of whole cloth about somebody who's not trying to hurt you. That is still a problem for me. So I would say to people, as you come out of this, you're going to learn some things about yourself that are going to, that are going to hurt. Try to accept them and try in whatever way you can not to allow accepting that to convince you that that, that means you're an irredeemable person. Mm -hmm. Finding a way to tolerate that you have character flaws without being wholly irredeemable. I mean, frankly, what I'm describing is something that people with borderline have to learn. Yeah. But it's also, you know, those traits in me are, are, are difficult as well. I don't know how to tell you how to do it, but if you can keep those things in mind, you might get more out of your journey, if you will, than I, otherwise. I, I really want to echo that and validate it because um, a couple months ago, you and I had a, a phone chat where you had shared with me, you're like, oh, I, I had all the borderline traits. I think I probably was a borderline, undiagnosed borderline for yeah. a long time. And what you, it was like, when, there's this old phrase says, once you become aware, you can no longer become unaware. And when you said that to me, I thought, oh my God, you're describing me. And, and, <laughs> and instantly in that moment, and and I want to share this with the, with the audience because I've never, I've never shared it before. I shared it with my wife recently, but, um, I look back on the course of, um, I don't know, late 90s through uh, adulthood into probably as recently as 2017, I, I was that. And, and I, when you said it, it, it was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I did all those things. The, the, the excessive drinking, the gambling addiction, the unstable social relationships, the unstable romantic relationships, um, the, yep. the, the job carousel. Um, who's at the core of that me and, and it was my insecurities and my, and and there's reasons why this manifested in the way that it did and so so forth. But the point was I I started to come out of it largely due to some heavy influences in my life professionally, because it helps working in this profession, people who are kind, but firm. Christian Conti is one of them. Jesse Lott, my clinical director is another one. Um, and I, I just, once I realized it, when you, when it crystallized for me just a couple months ago, I went, oh man, that's what happened. I have doubled down now on self-checking. Yeah. 
And it is hard. It's really hard because what you're describing there that is so challenging is the letting go of what you thought you knew, which you thought was your personality, which you thought was your character, your identity, and opening your hands and your heart and your soul and your mind to something else. And you don't know what that is. And that's terrifying because it leaves you not holding anything. Yes. But, but what usually comes is something more intentional that you can grab onto. Um, I intentionally want to be caring. I intentionally want to be giving. I intentionally want to be selective in my speech and not reactionary, right? And so I've, I've gotten better at that. <laughs> no. I'm still I'm still failing, but man, early <laughs> you are way better than I am. Dude. Well, I mean, honestly, it's, <laughs> first of all, I wasn't as bad. I my situation wasn't as dire, and I've been practicing it longer, right? Yeah. Um, so, but now I'm intentionally practicing it more. And I think that matters. And I'll say this too, like the, the idea that you can notice things coming up and you, you know, making enemies is whole cloth out of nothing, right? And you're like, Ooh, what am I doing there? It requires a self-reflection that needs practice. Because uh, if yeah. you've been practicing the other way a really, really long time, in order to change that, you have to practice a different way. It's, it's no different than any athletic ability either. You know, it's swinging a bat the wrong way so that you're always fouling off balls. Well, you gotta you gotta hold the bat higher and throw your top hand. You gotta practice that a zillion times before you get it right. So psychologically, behaviorally, we have to practice these things, and in order to practice them, we have to know them and we have to change them. And what does that require? <laughs> A label. <laughs> like, I had to. Yeah. I had to be comfortable labeling myself. I was like, "Oh man, for twenty years, I probably had borderline personality disorder." <laughs> like, that's a, that's kind of a long time, right? Or, yeah, and 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 it's and and actually, I, I, you did this. You did. You've done this for me a couple of times. Um, but I, I will tell this. You know, because I, I, I do think it's valuable for people to to hear it because I think some people will recognize themselves or someone they know in it. <clears throat> maybe about four months ago, four or five months ago. Um, uh, I have a temper, but it is a temper that is most easily triggered on social media. Mm-hmm. I am a different person on Twitter, believe it or not, than I am in most other interactions. Um, there is something about that format that is so provocative to me. And makes me feel so defensive and so ready to lash out. Well, it's very cluster uh, it's just, B. Pardon? It's very cluster B. Yes, it's it's a format that structurally encourages and or funnels people of all sorts who personality disordered or, or not, not into yep. behaviors yes. that are cluster B. Yep. Right. Myself, other people, right? I had a I was being particularly obnoxious. Uh, one evening and really just showing my ass and you texted me and um, I don't remember the exact details of what you said, but you were kind, but firm. And and you said, I understand how you're feeling, uh, but you're not doing yourself any favors here. And, and I don't want to see you lose credibility or, you know, lose the ability to speak to people this way, which was a very kind uh, uh, and correct thing to do. Now, on the other hand, when I got that text, my immediate emotional reaction was absolute fury at you. (laughs) I wanted to punch you. I wanted to yell names at you. And I wanted to say, how dare you? I knew you hated me all along. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's difficult from 2,800 miles away or whatever you are. (laughs) Yeah. Thank God. But but, (laughs) but that's the initial emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. Um, And it doesn't last long. That used to be, for me, that was the reaction and that was it. Now... 
I, I can't lie and say that I don't have that initial emotional reaction. I still do. I'm still very insecure. Yeah. But now it lasts for five minutes or a half an hour and I can walk it off and I can come back a few hours later when when I when my heart is not going like this. Mm-hmm. Right. And I can say it's OK. It, yep. It's OK. I, I, right? I agree. That's I progress. You. Even I would love to get to the point where I do not have that initial emotional reaction. I don't know if I ever will. I, I but know. I can tell you that if you do. You can make that progress and having it for five minutes or a half an hour is way better than having it permanently. Yeah. And I don't know that we want to get rid of it completely. And here's why. Um, I still have that response when I get um, passed over for things. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I'm frustrated. The, the most recent was, and it's a controlled burn now. It wasn't before. Um, but uh, the city of Reno decided to take $1.3 million worth of CARES Act money and threw it at talk space. Which was just disgusting. Like, and and I made my voice heard, and and I took a personal offense at that. Now, years ago, I would have just ranted privately among people, and I would have never let it go. Now, what I did this time around was, I I noticed it because I'd practiced it before. I went, "Ooh, you're having that reaction again." You teach emotional functioning for a living. What are you going to do with this? And I I got two choices when I feel that level of anger. Act on it to try to make change, and then it's up to me how long I want to like run it out, or regard it as invalid and move on. This was very, very valid because my personal offense was not misdirected. It was on behalf of the entire therapeutic community of the cities of Reno and Sparks who could have done help here and kept the money in the community and way more nimbly and accurately served the population. So I decided to say something, and and I did, and um, and. Truth be told, I knew where it was going to go, which was nowhere. There was a lot of dog and pony show from the politicians. But but the point was, I noticed it, and I still feel it. And I think the reason I don't ever want to discard that is because it compels me to keep moving forward, to chase down big goals. And I've learned also to not go conquer the world, too. That's I don't need to slay dragons anymore. Uh, shout out to my, my, uh, my ops director, Marina, because she was one of the ones who pointed that out just very recently. I don't need to slay dragons anymore. And if I choose to slay a dragon, I want to make sure it's very precise and it's going to impact the people who are most intimately connected with me. And that would be my my immediate community and the people yep. with whom I'm already doing business. Um, I don't need to go reaching for the stars anymore. If the stars come to me, great. But um, I'm I, my, my energy is better expended here. So if I put in for a grant or I, I ask for a contract or I try to partner with somebody and, they, and we get passed over for some other agency or entity or whatever, I go, ooh. And then I go, well, it's not meant to be. And that's where that's where my faith comes in and, yes. and certain things. But but I think to your to your point though, and the invitation to the audience is if you can be self-aware enough to know that emotion, know what it is, label it accurately, and then act precisely upon it, um, you're being you're gonna be way more effective than just writing off what otherwise could have been some corrective information or or self-growth. You know, so yeah. thanks for saying that. I, I do take that compliment. I didn't want to gloss over that. I appreciate you saying that. Covered a lot, didn't we? I think that's a good place to stop. Um, okay. Yeah. So thank you for having me, Jake. Yeah, tell everybody where they can reach you. Uh, the podcast is called Disaffected. Uh, you can look up Disaffected Podcast on YouTube. You can also find it on any podcast platform: iTunes, Spotify, that kind of thing. We do have a website, but it's down right now, so it'll come back. Um, if you are interested in consulting or coaching, my website is Joshua Slocum. 
Net. The only reason you said it at the beginning of the show, the only reason I introduced myself in spoken form as Joshua Slocum is simply not to slur Josh Slocum. You can just <laughs> go ahead and call me Josh. I don't walk around saying, hi, I'm Joshua. <laughs> Although you can, if you'd like. Uh, we yeah, but judge. that's pretentious yes, and I'm already is, bad enough. Yes, it is. So. <laughs> Well, um, I sure appreciate you. I appreciate all the work that you're doing. That means Likewise. a lot to me, obviously. And I'm glad we connected and became friends. And one of these days we'll meet in person and, uh, and that'll be cool. And you'll get to meet the kids and the family and that'll be neat. Sounds so, good. Um, on behalf of the Noggin Notes family and the Zephyr Wellness family, thanks for listening. Uh, pass this around. Give us a rating and review. Hopefully it's a good one. And uh, we'll see you all next time. We wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye.